Hi, I'm Beck Rayner and this is the Military Wife Life Podcast, a podcast that celebrates, empowers, supports and embraces the women behind the military men by building connections, acknowledging our strength, focusing on self-care and our mental health. Let's do this together. This episode of Military Wife Life is proudly brought to you by Defence Bank. Serving those who protect us, Defence Bank have the largest on-base branch network with 37 locations around Australia. They have Army, Air Force and Navy covered. But hey, if you can't make it into a branch, Defence Bank's mobile bank app is award-winning. It won a Mozo Experts Choice Award in 2019 in the excellent bank app category. How good is that? Defence Bank all also have all the pays, Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, Garmin and Fitbit Pay. They have Pay ID and OSCO payments, which means instant transfers. Oh, and Defence Bank customers also have access to fee-free withdrawals at over 7,000 ATMs nationwide. To find out more about how Defence Bank can serve you, call 1-800-033-139 or visit defencebank.com.au or drop into your local branch on base. Well, thank you for coming on the Military Wife Life podcast, Shari. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I guess we'll firstly get into it if you can tell us how long you and your husband have been together and how you met each other. So me and Mark have been together for 17 years. Met through my brother. Him and my brother were in some class together in Melbourne because my brother was also in the Navy. So Mark was in the Navy when I met him and that's how I met him. Didn't like him. <laughs> but he he chased me and wouldn't take no for an answer and 17 years later we're still here <laughs> yeah <laughs> so obviously he was already in the process of joining the navy when you met was there any hesitation at the start in getting involved with someone in defense well he was already well and truly in he was just finishing one other course I don't think I ever thought about it actually my brother was in I had already dated a couple of other sailors before I don't think I even thought about it at all the only thing I thought about was this is my brother's friend and I've been told not to touch brother's friends (laughs) so (laughs) that's the only thing that popped in my head so what does your husband do in the navy and does it take him away a fair bit how does his job sort of work he is a marine technician on a submarine does take him away a fair bit but being in a submarine like family sort of thing I kind of don't get exposed to the greater navy I guess because we're like a little navy inside a navy it's like a little family I I don't know how to explain it other than that I've got friends that are in surface ships and stuff and I feel that I'm just really lucky that we're looked after. He goes away a fair bit at the moment. He's home and has been home for two and a half years. I think the longest deployment he's done has been a nine-month one. And yeah, he's been in, well, he's done 16 years on a submarine and in 16 years, he's actually only ever been home for four of those. He's been on a submarine the whole time. Home four times and you have four kids. 
We have four kids, yes. <laughs> so he's done two and a half years. We went to Melbourne just so he could have a break um, and he knew he wouldn't get tapped on the shoulder to go to sea as Mark originally came from Melbourne. So it was a chance for kids to spend time with his family because we don't post being WA in the only submarine base. We are always in WA and we've come home. We landed and he left basically the day after we got here and what was it, 2012 we got back to Perth and he was here until 2000 and he was gone till 2017 and then he got posted ashore and he was actually ready to go back to sea in the next couple of months but things have changed. When you mentioned that it's like you're in the Navy within the Navy because you're sort of your own little community, I guess the difference being is that you're only posted to the one location really so you have that security of being in the one location so you can really form those bonds with people but then also you have restrictions in the fact that when they're away the communication is next to nothing because of obviously security reasons and they're in a sub under (laughs) under the ocean so there's differences but I guess there's pluses and minuses to the little community that you're talking about. Yeah you know when he's gone yeah we don't have any communication whatsoever we do have once a week it's called uh family gram so we've got like a little book that's got coded messages in it that we can look up and write messages you've got 26 words or numbers so in this little coded message you know there'll be numbers associated with little sentences so for instance number five might say hey honey how are you so you would do five comma six comma mark blah 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 and stuff like that and you make up your own little message and you can send those once a week if they are permitted they're allowed to return one but not always they are getting a lot better with making sure that they do get the sailors to return them because submarines want family included they've got a big emphasis on family um, and they bend over backwards for families if there's anything that happens at home it's one call and mark is got contact straight away almost you know if they can providing that they're not in like a communication blackout but most of the time we haven't had any major issues there's only been one time that I've called when I had a cyst rupture on my ovary and I got taken in for emergency surgery I made a phone call because we had a two-year-old at the time and I made a phone call to say that you know I needed to get hold of him or he needed to come home they were off the coast of Adelaide at the time and Mark was home within 32 hours he was met a boat, he was chucked off the submarine, flights were booked, hotels were booked and he was out and he was home, no questions asked. So it definitely makes it a lot easy if something happens at home to know that they're going to look after us. So does it work the same way as if someone was on a ship Do you call the emergency phone line or is there a different process with the subs? I'm not entirely sure because we have, I've never done surface ships. I only know one instance from helping a friend and it took four days of arguing to even get someone to help. And that was going through chaplains and everything. I have a contact number that I contact and it just happens. (laughs) Yeah. So everyone behind the scenes does their part. There's no arguing you know, obviously like, you know, you don't call because you cut your finger open on a, on a knife or something like that. You know, we don't make these calls easy. In saying that the Navy obviously want to include families and really want to have that emphasis on the community of family and 
I guess you guys being an integral part of the people on the on the subs lives and obviously then the output that they have in their job is there a higher rate of I guess marriages and relationships not making it because of the lack of communication like not being able to even have you know a phone call or a FaceTime it's got to be that extra level of hard Oh, it definitely does. Like, it's hard not to talk to someone that you spend your life with. I text him. Most wives do text. You know, if they have a bad day, they'll send a text. Or, you know, if they need to vent, they'll have texts and stuff like that. So when they pop up and they get phone reception, you can hear all their mobiles. They just go ping, 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 because there's all these messages that come through. And when you say pop up, you you literally mean when the sub pops up out of the water? Yep, certainly. (laughs) So we don't know where they are at all unless they surface and they come into port. So, you know, we get told rough dates, but nothing is ever confirmed until they're actually there. So we might not know that they've arrived until I get a phone call or a text message to say, hey, I'm in, let's just say, hey, I'm in Singapore. And that's that's how it is. But there is definitely... I think that's why submarine force is trying to include family and be a bit more family friendly because there has been in the past quite a lot of marriage breakdowns because, you know, it is stressful. You've got to do it all on your own. You don't get that talk. The kids don't get that talk. My kids actually do better not talking to Mark when he's gone because they kind of get over it. Three days of being upset and then they realize this is the life and they get into the swing of things. Whereas when Mark's been on course and we can talk to him, they're constantly reminded he's not here. They don't have that chance to get over. I know, you know, friends that are in surface ships, they, their kids need to talk to their husband, but that's what they've always done. Whereas this is what we've always done. So I guess it's adapt and overcome really. Yeah. I guess if it's what you've always known from when you were born, I guess they're sort of born into the lifestyle as opposed to, as you mentioned, if, if he had changed over from another position in the Navy, there'd be a, a much harder transition. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, going back to, you know, them looking after family, like you said before, I have four children. Mark has been at every single birth, well posted to submarines, well being at sea because they make sure that they get them home. It's just what they do. What is the community like back home while the husbands or partners are away? It is, you know, can be quite tight knit. You know, I don't know every wife. I don't know everybody. You form a little groups when husbands are on deployment. But in times of needs, everybody just helps. There's no questions. How did you envision your career working alongside your husband's? What did you go into defence life thinking would happen with your Uh, career? I actually gave up my career when I got pregnant. I actually used to be a jockey. So, you know, riding in races and I had actually had a really bad race fall. So continuing that wasn't something that I thought that I could manage because, you know, if something happened to me, I now have a child to think of. So early on, once we had had a child, we sat down and had a conversation of he's already going to miss out on one parent enough. Does he need to spend all day in daycare and me work just to pay daycare fees? And then he kind of misses out on two parents. Can we survive on one wage? And the decision was made that I would just stay home for the time being. I've stayed home. I've raised four children from home and then went back to work actually in a daycare center, unfortunately 
due to stuff that has happened with my eldest son getting sick. I've now had to quit my job. In mentioning about your son getting sick, can you tell us what's been happening with your son? My 16-year-old had a brain tumour um, and he's had that removed and he's been diagnosed with like a brain cancer. Um, it's, it's definitely life-changing. It's not something I see coming at all. And it's, it's hard. <laughs> I take my hat off to my son every single day because he is so strong. Um, and when he has his bad days, well, he's allowed bad days, but he's, he's doing amazing. He was diagnosed in July. So we're just really just trying to find our feet. And once again, Navy submarine community is amazing. Mark has been given flexible working hours. He does school drop-off and pick-up. He makes up extra time by working from home. If he needs to work from home, no one's got an issue. He was due to go back to sea. They're giving him a compassionate posting to make sure he has 12 months at home because he needs to be here. And the submarine force is protecting him to make sure he's here. You know, there's not many places that, you know, he goes to work at nine o'clock and finishes at 2.30 every day. You know, I had wives after another drop food off. You know, they all pre-made food when we were first in hospital, which was amazing because the last thing you needed to do, you know, when Mark had been up at the hospital was come home and try and cook for three more kids at home. So that was a godsend, really. In the lead up to your son being diagnosed, were there other appointments or was it a fairly out of the blue diagnosis? What happened with all of that? Yeah, so he'd been a little bit sick, flu-like symptoms. And then I'd taken him to my GP you know, influenza A was going rampant and they swabbed for influenza A. And while we were in the surgery, he had little spasms in his fingers. And my son has needle phobia as well, so it doesn't help. And the GP's like, I really need to get some fluids into you because you're really dehydrated. And then his fingers went spasm and he goes, look, I'd actually prefer to get you to a hospital. So he called an ambulance and we headed to the hospital. We're in the hospital. They treated us for influenza A. Swabs came back positive for influenza A. At this stage, my son actually had trouble walking. Not that he couldn't walk. He just was a bit unsteady. And I argued with the nurse. I remember arguing with her saying, I know you're saying this is influenza, but I don't believe it's influenza. My gut instinct tells me there's something more. You need to start looking. They refused to. I had another nurse come in and tell my 16-year-old to get up off the bed and stop lying there like a dying duck. By this stage, I'd spent 24 hours in emergency and I said, enough's enough. And he'd been pumped with antibiotics and fluids and all that sort of stuff that he actually did perk up and he looked really good. And I said, right, I'm discharging and we're going to another hospital because I'm done. Because I asked for a transfer to another hospital and I was refused transfer, even using private health. By the time we self-discharged, he was showing me how well he could jump on one leg going, I don't need to go to hospital because he's needle phobia. He doesn't want to go to the hospital. So I was like, okay, fine. Maybe I'm overreacting. That was in June. So in the course of a month to the following month, we had doctor visits. You know, I said he's not getting better. And they had said that maybe it was a chest infection. They gave him antibiotics and he kind of perked up a little. And then he went downhill again. And we're in a two story. He couldn't walk. This is a 16 year old couldn't walk. He'd ring us at two o'clock in the morning to help him go to the toilet. I was at work one day. And I rang him and I thought I heard slurred speech. 
and I said to work, I'm leaving. I'm going to take him to the hospital. Like there's something not right. I got him to the children's hospital, but because he's 16, they wouldn't take him because they said he's not a child. And again, my son was like, mum, you're overreacting. And he's showing me what he could do. So I'm thinking, am I overreacting? Maybe I didn't hear the slurred speech because I'm really listening to him. So I got in the car and I drove home and I said to my husband, you need to take him to doctors again tomorrow because I had work. I said, he needs to get checked because I didn't see the doctor. There's just something else going on. The doctor's like, nah, it's just an infection. Gave me antibiotics again. That was like the Friday on the Monday. I took him back to my doctor and I said, I wonder if it's vertical because by this stage, you know, he was really nauseated, headaches, dizzy, he couldn't walk. And I'm trying like, you know, do you think it like vertigo? And the doctor's like, oh, maybe it is. It could be because he had influenza and, you know, it can happen. I'm like, okay. So he gave him stuff and he said, by the end of the week, if he's not better, let's get a full blood workup. And I went, okay, sure. By the end of the week, we'd gone back to the hospital because his headaches were just so severe and he really couldn't walk. And we went straight to the hospital and said, this is what we've just been through, blah, blah, blah. And that's when they found a brain tumour. And then we were rushed to Sir Charles Gardner up in the city, which has got the best neuro team. And they quickly put a shunt in his head that night to relieve the pressure in his brain and then give them time to plan surgery to remove the tumour. I was told on arrival that they couldn't believe that one that we had driven up there ourselves because the hospital again released us and told us to drive ourselves after being told he had you know a brain tumor hey military wife life community i wanted to take this opportunity to tell you a little bit about the defense bank foundation and the great work they're doing in the defense community the foundation raises funds to support serving and ex-serving adf members living with injuries or illnesses such as post-traumatic stress disorder in 2019, the sole beneficiary of the foundation was the Defence Community Dogs Program, a specialised dog training program which rescues abandoned dogs and trains them through correctional services. 40 service dogs have been trained and given to veterans since the Defence Bank Foundation was established. The program gives dogs, inmates and veterans a second chance at life. And then they also told us that we were lucky we got in when we did because they reckon one more day of this pressure and he'd actually be dead. So I'm never going against my gut instinct again. <laughs> I'm going to jump up and down a lot more, I think. Um, and yeah, so, so they've got so the brain tumour. So how feeling about the fact that you had to fight it for so many weeks with no one really, not believing you, but no one investigating further? It's annoying. I was kind of waiting until everything had calmed down. I'm, I'm writing complaints because this shouldn't happen. I've learned that there is Ryan's Law. I've learned about Ryan's Law. I didn't know about that before. Everybody should know about Ryan's Law. It protects the mum's gut instincts. You know, if, if they invoke that Ryan's Law, they need to listen and they need to investigate. And what is Ryan's um, Law? Yeah, so Ryan's Law is... It was developed after a little boy named Ryan. The mother, she was arguing with the hospital that there was more and no one would believe her. In the end, he actually died. Had they listened to her, he wouldn't have died. They would have been able to sort it. So Ryan's law is if you invoke Ryan's law, it's just basically your mother gut instinct and nurses and doctors have to take you seriously, not just bluff you off and tell you that, don't know what you're talking about. Mum gut instinct, it's unexplainable. and People who are mums understand what a gut instinct is. 
And so once they had him in that first night, what was the plan of action from there? The first night they were just relieving all the pressure in his head and to maintain and get him stable. That was on the Friday night. So we just tried to be stable over the weekend. The Saturday he was good. Sunday was not good as they, in the the shunt that they put in, they can clamp it. So like the spinal fluid doesn't keep coming out. So he doesn't lose too much spinal fluid. They clamped it off, but by clamping it off, it cost pressure again. So he, he was not good. And then Monday they had an MRI to plan exactly how to do it. And then Tuesday they went in and removed the tumour. So that was a very long five hours sitting and waiting. In the meantime, did you have family come to be with you to, I guess, look after the other kids? Or like, how did you manage everything? I'm extremely lucky. My mum lives here and my brother lives here because I actually grew up in WA. So my brother took, I think, two or three of my kids and my mum stayed at my house for the week that I was in the hospital following the surgery and she cooked, cleaned, did school drop-off so Mark could just flutter between hospital and home and not have to worry about anything. And so what happened after the surgery? Prior to him having the surgery, we were told to expect a minimum of two months rehab because where it is, it's in the cerebellum, which is at the back of your head, which does all your motor skills and stuff like that. And they said that, you know, expect a minimum of two months rehab. You'll probably need to learn to walk again. He might have trouble with speech. You know, be realistic. This is where it is. You know, the tumour was about a four and a half centimetre sized golf ball. We were lucky because this type of tumour actually spread to the spine and other parts of the brain, but he's clear of everything else. He's only got that one tumour, which they've removed. So we're really lucky in that sense. So we were expecting, you know, a big, long rehab. We were told only 5% ever get up and walk away after this sort of surgery. And I am pleased to say that he's in that 5%. So he got up after surgery the next day and walking, talking, you know, it took him a bit to get his full stable, but, you know, the physios came and took him to the shower the next day and the surgeon when she reported back to the surgeon the surgeon had to ask three times if she actually had the correct person because he didn't think that he would be out walking nurses on the ward had said that they didn't hold high hopes either so we're definitely having a best of a bad situation knowing that you know he's in that five percent and you know knowing that there's no other mastocytes there's no cancer cells down his spine there's no mastocytes on his spine whereas there's lots of other kids are not as lucky it's also a what it's called as a medulla blastoma and it's a childhood cancer So we're really lucky, even though he was 16, I rang the children's hospital in Perth and they have taken him under his under their wings. So we're now with the children's hospital and the head oncologist actually specialises in medulloblastomas. So we're in the best hands, just have to yeah. let everyone work their miracles. So what has to happen now? So he has six weeks of radiation, Monday to Friday, every day. Amazingly, he goes to school every day, other than the odd day or here or there when he's not feeling that great. Wow. Um, <laughs> If, if there up. was any reason for a kid to want a day off school, it would be definitely this, and he's still going to yep, school. Yeah, he does. The school has been amazing. They've bent over backwards for him. So he goes to school. I pick him up normally about quarter to three, and we drive to the city every day. 
he has radiation, takes about half an hour. He's strapped like he's put onto a table and he's got like a big mask that's strapped onto his head. So he's really like he's stuck. He can't move. And then uh, he'll then have between four and six weeks break. It depends on how well he bounces back from radiation. So it depends on platelets and, you know, blood counts and stuff like that. And then we'll start chemotherapy. So oncology want to start sooner the better. But if they have to wait the six weeks because he needs a bit more time to recover, they will. But they want to start between four and five weeks and he will have four months of chemotherapy. And from what I've been told, each round is about eight days of chemo. So he'll have four days where he's in hospital with chemo and then he'll come home for a few days and then on day eight he goes back to hospital and has another IV chemo for a day and then he's home to recover for three weeks make sure everything bounces back up and then the eight day cycle starts again so you'll have like four rounds of that which is roughly about four months but it can go longer depending if he doesn't recover between each round and then it's wait and see and I guess the experience made that little bit better because of I mean you've had to quit your job but you've got the security and the backing of defense yeah mark doesn't have to worry about him i don't have to worry about getting someone to look after the kids or anything like that because you know mark knows that if he just rings and says look I'm not coming in today. There's no questions. Okay, no worries. Mark's got a token where he can actually log on to the defense web and work from home. So the type of job, they've moved him jobs so he is able to do this. So they've definitely bent over backwards to do everything for him to make life easy. You know, I can focus on my son knowing that I don't need to worry about anything else. I don't need to worry about any of the other kids. And yeah. Mark's a really good housewife. <laughs> he has dinner cooked every night. He cooks, he cleans, he does washing. It's, you know, it's made easy. I guess yeah. he doesn't get to do that when he's away. So he might be loving it. When he does go away, because obviously I do everything, when he does come home, he very much does majority of everything because he knows how much I do. So he says that the least I can do is do it for you well. I'm yeah. home. So he's been home about two and a half years. And I think in two and a half years, I've probably done washing maybe about 10 times. I wow. don't do washing. It's going to be a real shock for you when he leaves again. <laughs> it will. I, I'm dreading, you know, the time that he does get that tap on that shoulder to go, but he enjoys doing what he does. And, I, you know, yeah. I wouldn't ask him to stop. So You mentioned that your son's just basically taken it on like, yeah, okay, just slotted into my day, my, my school day. Yeah. I guess half of it is staying positive and taking it day by day, really. He's definitely had things made easier because of the school we also have a defense transition aid at the school so my son is at colby catholic college and the defense transition aid there she's amazing and if anyone knows who she is they know she's amazing. She messages me on nearly a daily basis to make sure that I'm okay. She checks in on my other son that's at the school. She checks in on the two that are in primary school. Like she'll see how they're doing, even though it's not her job. The school's bent over backwards because obviously my son's doing ATARs. They're making sure that his scores stay good. They're grading him on what they already know, not what he's going to do. They've released him of doing assessments. They're just not going to write any scores in um, they'll just leave it blank so therefore it won't pull his overall score down or keep it bumped up so they've told him to worry about him getting well the defense transition aid messages me with different things that the defense can do to help as well because she's well knowledgeable in that being a 
defence wife herself. So there's lots of other little things that she comes away with that I never thought of. And so how are you feeling about, obviously it's a, a long road ahead, but I guess being made easier by all the support and the positive outcomes at the start with the surgery? I kind of just doing one step at a time, one foot in front of the other. I don't, I'm not really looking too far ahead. I'm pretty sure I'm waiting for it to all crash at some point because it hasn't crashed on me yet. I think I'm too worried about being strong for him because it has knocked him around a lot. You know, he's he's worried about everything. He's 16. He understands he's not silly. It's not like we can hide anything from him. He also is involved in every decision that's made and he wants to be involved. He also has the option, this, the hospital has given him the option if he doesn't want to hear anymore, he can step out and they'll tell me. What have they said once, I guess, the radiation and the chemo is done? Is there a general rule of it will be fine then or is it just waiting in to see how he reacts to it or how does it sort of work with his type of diagnosis? I don't know. They don't want to talk about prognosis. The doctors don't want to jump too many steps ahead. I have asked a few questions and that's the answers I've been given, which I'm a person that likes to know things. I have done research. So the type of medulloblastoma that he's got, there's four subcategories as well. And he's in like the second category, which is named a sonic hedgehog. And from what I've read about that, uh, survival rate is 70 to 90%. So it's the highest out the whole lot. It's the easiest one to fight. He's definitely getting the best out of the worst situation. You know, there's lots of kids that have overcome it. Do they go through anything in regards to like fertility and stuff like that? Because you're going from one yeah. day just going to the doctor and thinking that it's influenza A, and then a couple yeah. of weeks later you're having to think of infertility yeah. and secondary cancers. And We started treatment within 36 days of because we had to start within 36 days of the tumour being removed because we actually are overseen by St. Jude's in America because they're top medulloblastoma people. So prior to starting the treatment, I did ask, you know, he's 16, can we do a fertility sperm deposit? And it's not something a mum wants to talk to a 16-year-old son about. And they've been fantastic. So they organised all that beforehand. So he's done his, his deposit and it's secured for 15 years. If he chooses to use it, he chooses to use it. Poor kid. <laughs> Look, mum, I yeah, can jump on one leg and now you're asking me to do a deposit for in 10 years, 15 years' time. Yeah, we're trying to see, like, the funny side to some things, like when he was going up for, you know, to make a deposit. <laughs> you know, I said, you know, happy if your dad wants to take you or I can take you if you want, but I'm pretty sure you want your dad. And he's like, no, I think I'll take dad with me. And I was like, yep, cool. <laughs> um, and then as he was leaving, I'm like, I really want to say to you, have fun. <laughs> and he's like, oh, mom, please stop. And I'm like, okay, sure. So um, trying to still make him laugh, yeah. be lighthearted with some things. Well, it sounds like you've in the best hands now that everything has been diagnosed. And like you mentioned, the most positive of a crappy situation, that everything is going the way it should be and work is so flexible and you've got that community oh. around you. Yeah, we definitely, I don't think we would be as carefree, if that's the right word, or as stress-free as we are if it wasn't for 
the submarine side of the force. Like when it comes to this, it's not just the submarines, like it's the whole Navy because, you know, it's not just the submarines that stop, you know, to let Mark work the hours that he works to still make sure he's here. It's being stress-free is just more important than anything else. We think about jobs in the outside civilian world. There is no job that would be this lenient and still pay a full pay. In saying that, what have you learned, I guess, about defence life along the way in the last couple of months? What have you learned about defence life? I've learned that everyone's there to help and everyone's in the same situation. I guess when I was younger, I didn't really quite understand that and felt quite isolated. You know, there's lots of people that feel that isolation. So I I often now try to reach out to new people. It's hard when you first start to know that everyone is in the same situation you're in. You don't really understand that. And when the going gets tough, everyone just bands together. They're there to help. Even if you don't know the person, they'll drop food off to you or, you know, they'll send you a message or they'll come and babysit a kid, even if they have no idea and never met you before. But they understand and they know exactly how you feel most of the time when we first started out i guess messaging back and forth about doing a podcast episode this podcast episode was going to be about the submariner community and the way that the defense community over in perth really comes together and is like this tight-knit community in the process obviously your son was then diagnosed with his brain tumor and it turned in even more so into an episode about it being about how tight-knit and what a community defense and the Submariner community is. So it's just, you know, solidifies that even more about what we were originally going to talk about, I guess. It does. I had little scenarios that had happened before, you know, that I would have talked to you about. But, you know, obviously this is a major one. And a lot of people say bad things about the Navy and a lot of people have bad experiences and I'm not taking any of those bad experiences or bad feelings away from anybody else but I think that you know in the greater picture they're actually pretty good like they've been good to us they they look after us and I'm I'm pretty grateful and I'm proud of what my husband does well thank you so much for coming on the podcast I and I'm sure the military wife life community are just behind you and crossing everything that we can possibly cross that the treatment for your son continues to go well and the outcomes are as positive as what they were when he came out of his surgery. Fingers crossed, everything is crossed and I thank everyone for their support. I so hope you were able to relate or take something away from today's episode. There are definite ups and downs to military life, but let's get the conversation happening so we can see that we are all in this together. We are all just doing our best. So until next week, you got this. Let's do this together one day at a time. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this episode has touched you, helped you, or given you that extra confidence to keep going, to continue to hold down the home front, to continue to do all the things, I would so appreciate it if you could pop into Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the podcast and leave a review, a comment about what you would like to hear more of, or just some encouraging words. If you want to suggest a guest, I am always looking for new people to talk to. You can do that by jumping over to the website www.militarywifelife.com.au and clicking on our podcast page. I would love to hear from you. 